Do you happen to remember what happened on May 16th, 2022? Well, that's the day that the official death count from COVID-19 in the United States reached 1 million people. And now, just one month later, that number has grown by another 8,000 Americans dead from COVID-19. And while our lowest number of cases of COVID-19 in a year was in March of 2022, it's gone up more than threefold since then. That's three times as many cases per capita now, we're talking mid-June of 2022, as it was just three months ago. And that's just counting the number of reported cases. Many people who test positive for COVID are using home test kits and they don't actually report their disease to the medical community. So the rates of COVID are probably a lot higher than these official numbers. And even though I myself dodged the COVID bullet for more than two years, I contracted the COVID-19 virus myself a few weeks ago, and I'm fully vaccinated and boosted, so I'm fine now. But even though I've always taken a lot of precautions, these latest strains of the coronavirus are very, very infectious. And I've got numerous friends and colleagues who have also been infected by the coronavirus recently. You probably do too. So it looks like in spite of the cavalier attitude of so many people who are, for instance, not wearing masks, went out in public, this pandemic is not over. It needs to be on all of our radars. Dave Robinson here, and you are listening to Bench Talk the Week in Science. And if you haven't surmised as much yet, today's show is about the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus. It's another episode of Bench Talk Live, recorded by the Kentucky Academy of Science. Today you're going to hear from Dr. Stuart Williams of the University of Louisville Department of Physiology and Biophysics. Today, Professor Williams is going to talk about our current coronavirus and how it's different from other infectious coronavirus strains, how it actually invades our body, how it can get to our brain, why children seem less affected by COVID-19 than adults, and about the controversial COVID-19 treatment hydroxychloroquine. So let's start right in with it. First is an introduction by Amanda Fuller, Executive Director of the Kentucky Academy of Science. Dr. Stuart Williams is the Scientific Director of the Cardiovascular Innovation Institute, which is a partnership between the University of Louisville and Jewish Hospital and St. Mary's Healthcare, and he's also a professor in the Department of Surgery. Dr. Stuart Williams is an internationally known expert in biomedical engineering and has been at UofL since 2007. I am very excited to have you with us here, Dr. Williams, and very excited to hear you talk to us about COVID-19. Now, Amanda and everyone, thank you for joining uh, this presentation tonight. A little bit of a, a, a additional background. I'm an endothelial cell biologist by original training. Uh, most of my work was in electron microscopy, studying the endothelial cells. And then throughout my career, I have uh, spent a lot of time in regenerative medicine, tissue engineering, cell transplantation. The major topic is, again, COVID-19, this uh, unique coronavirus. 
My uh, beginnings of COVID-19 and cardiovascular disease relationship really started in the uh, early winter of 2019 when I was called by a couple of colleagues uh, from an organization known as DARPA, and they basically said, we think it's back, and that uh, should hopefully become evident what they uh, meant by that, and it was December of 2019. I had a DARPA project in the early 2000s that I was working on, and I will bring that out. I started really taking a look at this disease and started uh, doing a lot of review of the literature as it began to emerge, especially in 2020. I put this up. It appeared in my high school history class right above the door, which is by Santiana. It's a, a quote, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And this disease, for whatever reason, uh, and this virus, I've had to bring out all sorts of things from my past to really uh, help me understand how this disease is uh, progressing. So my uh, high school world history teacher was the, the first one to give me this quote, and it, it certainly held true. Two financial interests that I need to declare. I have a financial interest in a company called Orgenesis. Orgenesis uh, deals with cell and gene therapy for a number of inflammatory diseases. And I also have a financial interest and have received grants uh, and compensation uh, royalties from a company called Cyperio slash Enscript, same company, two different divisions. And this is in the area of 3D bioprinting. So off and running, severe acute respiratory syndrome, coronavirus 2, SARS-CoV-2, which uh, uh, is now called COVID uh, from 2019. So COVID-19, uh, it is a spherical virus. There are numerous virus uh, types that are uh, affect uh, mammals, uh, humans, but uh, also affect other species, including plants. The helical viruses are well known for that, but polyhedral viruses, adenoviruses are the most well known, um, and adenoviruses will play a part in some of the vaccine development we'll talk about. Spherical viruses, and the most famous one now is the coronavirus. These are helical viruses. They're enclosed by a simple membrane, and they have these spiky little sugary proteins that uh, allow this uh, particular virus to get into cells and do a number of wondrous things. And then there are very complex viruses known as bacteriophages. So we're going to focus on spherical viruses and specifically the coronavirus. Within the spherical viruses, there are several types. There's the novel coronavirus that I just talked about, the flu virus, and then the human immunodeficiency virus, HIV. So some specific differences, one similarity, they're all spherical viruses, but some specific differences. This coronavirus, the COVID-19, there's one simple RNA strand. It encodes four simple proteins. It does not integrate into a patient's genome. And this is often something confusing to the, uh, the lay public that they really need to know. This, this virus doesn't integrate into the genome. And it also contains what are known as the proofreading enzymes that basically correct abnormalities or changes, variants in the virus. So this virus is not subjected to a lot of variations taking place. That is, we'll talk about variants uh, do happen. 
different from the influenza virus where it uh, doesn't contain proofreading genes, it doesn't integrate, but it has eight RNA strands, much more complex than the uh, coronavirus. And then the human immunodeficiency virus, HIV, it does integrate into the patient's uh, genome and it doesn't contain these proofreading enzymes. So it undergoes lots of different variations, which means uh, coming up with a vaccine is difficult. So coronavirus should be pretty simple to create a vaccine, but nobody really worried about it for uh, uh, years because it really wasn't associated with major problems. A lot of what I'm going to talk about tonight is also going to be based on references gathered from the literature. Uh, it, it's interesting that uh, you know, benchtop topics, most of us in science haven't been to the bench for uh, a while. We're just getting uh, back to it. So a lot of us have been writing a lot of commentaries as well as uh, review papers. So this is a review that came out in March 2020. One of the remarkable things about this review, if you look at where people came from who provided information for this review of the coronavirus, it really shows you uh, in our attack on this particular virus and this disease, how the world of scientists have really come together. And that, that's something that I have been absolutely pleased and amazed with, that political barriers, all these different barriers that exist for fighting other things or creating fights really has uh, fallen apart. And we've been sharing so much information, especially uh, Chinese, and they were the first ones to really identify and really go after this virus. There's so much sharing going on. This is an interesting review in that it talks about the emergence of the coronavirus that we now notice uh, COVID-19. In the 1960s is when coronaviruses were really first identified uh, and we began to understand them as a, a unique virus, the 229E and the NL63. Uh, I remember this from my graduate school virology uh, uh, class. That was uh, coronavirus and uh, sort of caused a pneumonia, but nothing to worry about, no deaths reported. And then SARS hit in 2002, 29 countries, over 700 deaths. That became uh, somewhat of a concern. MERS hit, which was the first and hopefully the last time we'll name one of these coronaviruses after its area of origin, in this case, Middle Eastern coronavirus. More deaths, more countries uh, involved, certainly than the, the early coronavirus. And then COVID-19 hits. This is the data from March of 2020. And what I've put up is the data from yesterday from uh, uh, World Health Organizations. This new possible highly infective strain of uh, coronavirus, I think we're there. And as far as the cases and the deaths throughout the world, this is a, a very significant problem that is hopefully obvious to everybody uh, now in the, in the world. We still have a few that try to basically say, oh, it's still not a problem. It's just the flu, but it is something that uh, we have to contend with. Now, this is also from this paper with my addition of two things, all the different symptoms related to COVID-19. And then Grover is telling us one of these things is not like the others. The first two uh, coronaviruses that you see, SARS and MERS, 
pretty much lung specific. Pneumonia was one of the the major things that we saw with these two viruses. COVID-19, similar incubation death uh, period, but the problems that exist went throughout the body. That began to raise issues and questions that this virus is not attacking just the lungs and a few other organs sort of indirectly. This virus is attacking all of these uh, other organs. And we continue to see new syndromes and and new conditions that come up. One thing that became clear, uh, at least to me and a lot of other people, was the complications of COVID-19. Many of them, if not almost all of them, were related to the cardiovascular system. It's attacking the endothelium and it's attacking large and small blood vessels throughout the body. And here are all the diseases. This is about six months old when I put this slide together. Everything from alopecia, peripheral microvascular diseases, a Raynaud's-like disease is seen in a number of patients. Kidneys are affected, cardiac system affected, the sensory disruption olfactory and taste buds, and of of interest, paper that just appeared yesterday, the olfactory attack by COVID-19 may be the entranceway into the brain, that it's not through the blood-brain barrier. It appears to actually be able to, according to this uh, one publication, I I have limited myself to reading uh, publications once a week. It almost became a daily thing for me. I became obsessed with it. But uh, I read uh, yesterday directly through the olfactory uh, uh, bulb. So how does SARS-CoV-2 virus get into the body? What tissue is its main uh, uh, target? Well, we do know that it comes through the nasopharyngeal into the lungs. So the lung was considered one of the first targets of it. SARS utilizes two specific proteins, ACE2 and this membrane protein serine protease, known as TMPRSS2. I knew of these uh, two receptors uh, due to my study of endothelial cell ACE receptors, and this membrane serine protease is involved with prostate cancer and the metastasis of uh, prostate tumor cells. So I was familiar with uh, those from previous work that I've done. So it wasn't surprising, yeah, the the virus is using that, gets into the cells, uh, and then antibodies are produced uh, by the cells. But this doesn't explain how this virus, while it can get into the lung epithelial cells, how does it get throughout the body? Does it get throughout the body directly, or does it basically attack the the pneumocytes, the epithelial cells of the lung, and then cytokines are released uh, from there? One of the hints that it gets past the pneumocytes, and that's not necessarily its primary etiology as far as uh, dysfunction, is patients have been seen that have somewhat normal lung function, but have peripheral vascular disease, which suggests the virus may bypass the lungs in certain patients. Uh, There's a lot of discussion going on for us to try to understand why children have reduced susceptibility to COVID-19. They're not immune to it, as some have misspoken, but they do seem to have more resistance to it. They get a milder case of the disease. And there are a number of reasons for that. 
Um, and I, I won't spend a whole lot of time on this. This is a uh, Proceedings National Academy of Sciences, October 2020, and there has been some additional work on this. But one thought is kids are uh, always living in an incubator for viruses when they, they go to school. So they have more than likely been subjected to other spherical viruses, the common cold viruses, or possibly coronaviruses in the, the past, and have built up an immunity to it. There's some unique work going on as far as eosinophils involved with uh, the resistance, as well as the kid's ability to uh, modulate cytokine production a bit. And there's a, a relationship with childhood asthma. This is a field, as many of the things I'm going to talk about, that I know will basically be the target of research for many years to come as we will elucidate all the mechanisms of this disease far after the point that hopefully we've cleared uh, the disease. So first step, try to figure out how this virus gets in the body. We've got to understand how big it is. It's 100 nanometers in size, and this is a comparison with the other, uh, some of the other size materials. These are particles that we uh, use in order to look at airborne particulates, so 10 micron particles, two and a half micron, red blood cells, seven microns. So the coronavirus is relatively small, 100 nanometers. That means that a 0.22 micron filter will not block the coronavirus for those who think we can filter it out of our medias, et cetera. It's a relatively small virus. So how does it get into the cell? A medical drawing, I won't say who uh, put this up because I'm going to disparage it a little bit, the most common mechanism for the entry of the coronavirus from the lung space into endothelium and then into the blood is utilizing a mechanism that I call the black arrow. The black arrow is the most common way of explaining how the coronavirus gets past the epithelial cells, past the endothelial cells, or attacks the endothelial cells, which means it's a black box to most people. We still don't understand it completely. We're beginning to gain information, and I'll uh, uh, provide a little bit of that. But this has to be studied more in depth so we understand exactly how this virus can get across this layer, as well as begin to develop certain therapies that may block the virus. And that's where we will talk in the not-too-distant future about hydroxychloroquine, which is a blocker of the coronavirus getting into and across cells. This is a more recent presentation of how the virus gets into cells, two mechanisms, either endocytosis or direct membrane fusion of the virus with the cell. And that allows the RNA, the simple single strand of RNA to get into the cell to undergo viral replication. It doesn't explain how the virus can get across the epithelial cells to these other cells without undergoing this release of the viral RNA. And that's pretty clear to all of us now that that process takes place. So we have to go way back to June of 1979 to your speaker's PhD dissertation at the University of Delaware. And my PhD studies were on endocytic activity in endothelial cells which I didn't realize at the time I'd be presenting this document to you and show you some of my electron micrographs. For those of us who spent time getting dissertations and thesis 
My dissertation uh, sits in my laboratory, and uh, one of the uh, newer students one time asked, what's that? And a graduate student said, well, that's sort of like the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's a very old document, but it's really interesting to read, but you probably won't understand much that's uh, in there. So that, that both those students did very well, and I thought it was humorous. I'm going to show you some images from my PhD dissertation and some uh, work by a, a few colleagues that I'm going to put down my hypothesis as far as how this coronavirus gets into the epithelial space and attacks endothelial cells and then can get into the blood. A little bit of lung histology. The lung has uh, two major cell types, the epithelial cells that basically are in contact with the airspace. We call them pneumocytes. There are two types, pneumocyte one and two. Here's pneumocyte two. And then the vascular space that contains red blood cells and plasma. So here are the endothelial cells. For a coronavirus to get from the airspace into the blood space, it has to pass four plasma membranes, the epithelial air surface plasma membrane, the abluminal plasma membrane, the endothelial cell abluminal plasma membrane, and then the luminal plasma membrane of the endothelial cell to get into blood space. It's clear that it does that. Now we have to figure out what the mechanism is. And this goes to one of the pictures from my PhD dissertation. What epithelial cells of the lung and endothelial cells of the lung have are a system of vesicles that start out as a calveoli on the surface of the cell these can pinch off and carry materials to the opposite side. The unique aspect of them is they're about 100 nanometers in size and viruses can fit into these vesicles. This is believed to be the major mechanism for particles and viruses of this size and smaller to get across this uh, barrier. There's a little bit higher magnification again from my uh, dissertation with a a stain that shows these calveoli and uh, some small particles that are being carried. The vesicles can move across, nothing moves in a micrograph, but these vesicles can move across and fuse with the opposite side. I'm going to jump to this, which is my hypothesis for how this virus gets from the airspace below to the blood space. Here's the relative size of a coronavirus. Here are the vesicles of a epithelial cell of the lung. There's a base of membrane, and then these vesicles can get into the blood space. This whole area of use of electron microscopy to study virus transport and its ability to get the virus to get into cells has been very complicated due to really problems in electron microscopy identifying viruses and other structures within cells that look just like viruses. Uh, second author on this is Roberto Nicosia. Roberto and I worked together in Philadelphia. We were both electron microscopists. And I was really happy to see this uh, paper come out. I'll spend just a very short period of time talking about this. What this paper really pointed out is there are all sorts of structures inside a cell that look just like a virus. So I'll give you an example of it. There are vesicles inside cells that are coated with a protein that make it look just like a coronavirus. 
but these are nothing more than vesicles inside of a cell. The coronavirus, on the other hand, usually shows up inside cells in these multivesicular, and in this case, a multivirus body. So what I'm going to point out now is this is an electron micrograph of the coronavirus. This is an electron micrograph of a calveoli inside a cell. The number of papers that I have seen and reviewed where they call this a coronavirus, it's, it's absolutely incorrect. So we are at a point in the study of this coronavirus that we still do not fully understand based upon these artifacts of electron microscopy how these viruses get across this lining. But we do know they get across because we find virus in the blood and we find the virus in cells throughout the uh, the vascular system and throughout the organ system. Coronavirus endocytosis has been studied for a number of years. This is a paper that came out in 2021 showing again uh, using non-electron microscopy that it can get into cells using endocytosis. This is a study showing it can get across the blood-brain barrier using endocytosis. And one of the more unique papers in this field came out in 2008. It is a, a joint study between China and a group in Colorado where they basically tried to block, in this case, the SARS coronavirus ability to enter cells And their major conclusion was chloroquine inhibits this process of endocytosis into epithelial. They use predominantly epithelial cells for these studies. This is where these scientific reports can all of a sudden lead to politicians and others saying, let's try other drugs, other materials in order to block the entry of a virus or the effect of the virus. My statement on that is, yeah, we should try all these uh, different things and see if they work or not. And this is actually one of the original papers that was used when chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine was being used. And yeah, if you treat these cells as another control with straight chlorine bleach, you'll stop the endocytosis completely. But I I don't want to make this political at all in any uh, statements that I make. Again, understanding endocytosis for drug repurposing. And there has been a lot of work that has gone on in drug repurposing just to block this endocytosis. An immunopathologic look at COVID-19, one of the things that we learned very quickly is it reduces cells related to natural immunity in the body. You lose B cells, natural killer cells. It activates many T cells that lead to inflammatory cell production, as well as some cells that are anti-inflammatory, you see a reduction in T cells, B cells, and NK cells. And this is one of the first things that we learned coming out from Chinese studies, that there was a dramatic reduction in T and B cells in these patients. And it leads to a cytokine storm the production of all of these factors in the blood. And many of these cytokines were obviously not coming just from lung epithelial cells. They had to come from endothelial cells within the vascular system, and then antibodies are produced. We know that lymph nodes are important to natural immunity, and specifically the dendritic cells that are found within the lymph node 
So the question also was raised, does this virus directly attack the lymph nodes of patients? And that's pretty clear from the literature now. This is a really nasty virus. It gets right across the epithelial cells of the lung, goes to the vascular system, and goes right to one of our major defense mechanisms, the the lymph nodes in the body. That was Dr. Stuart Williams, professor in the Department of Physiology and Biophysics at the University of Louisville. We don't have time for his entire lecture today, so we'll continue that on another episode of Bench Talk the Weekend Science. We want to thank Professor Williams and thank the Kentucky Academy of Science for holding this session. This is Dave Robinson, and you've been listening to Bench Talk the Weekend Science here on WFMP 106.5 FM here in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.